Hello, podcast listeners. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be posting some of our favorite talks from EA Global Boston in 2017. On today's episode, we have Professor Mark Lipsitch. Mark is the Professor of Epidemiology and the Director of the Center for Communicable Diseases, Disease Dynamics at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. He argues that if we really care about catastrophic risks, at least in the field of infectious diseases, we should uh, focus on controlling smaller risks. Thank you, Roxanne, and thanks uh, to all of you for attending and to the organizers for the invitation. <clears throat> so the basic point is that uh, in infectious diseases, it's very rarely the case that we have uh, an event which has a big flashing red sign saying on it, this is a global catastrophic risk. That is not the typical situation. Infectious diseases always start uh, as a small and difficult to interpret, often usually difficult to interpret thing. So on the left here is a slide of the initial report of the HIV epidemic. And it was uh, an epidemic of five young men with pneumocystis pneumonia in Los Angeles. And a few years later, it was worked out that this was, and they were all uh, gay men, and it was eventually worked out that they were uh, immunocompromised due to human immunodeficiency virus, then called HTLV-3, and the world's attention became focused on this, uh, on this issue. But this was just a case report of five men with some unusual uh, things in common, both in terms of uh, their demographics and in terms of uh, what was happening to them medically. But it was not, it did not announce itself as a global catastrophe, and indeed, uh, the fact that it was in Los Angeles meant that it had already spread from its, uh, from its origins, from its African origins, <clears throat> and was widespread in the human population. But at the beginning of our recognition of it, it was uh, one event uh, of a rather small magnitude. The 2009 swine flu, which many of us uh, will remember, emerged in La Gloria, Mexico. Uh, with 60% of the town's population sickened by a respiratory illness uh, of unknown uh, origin. It then, that was in uh, February of 2009. By May of 2009, uh, it had had come to uh, the attention of authorities nationwide in Mexico and in the United States. Uh, And it was still, as I'll show you in a minute, uh, quite uncertain whether it was, uh, whether this was a major catastrophe or a minor blip. And the Black Death, which is uh, arguably the worst infectious disease epidemic in human history, uh, started with, uh, um, in terms of proportional impact on the population, started uh, with spread from China and then led to, uh, then moved across uh, Asia and Europe in a rather gradual fashion due to the slow transport of the time. Even with pandemic influenza, and even when it's, when it's hit uh, large-scale populations, there are, uh, there are often very small events that herald larger events. And there is, in fact, a term in influenza epidemiology, the herald wave, uh, which describes the early wave of influenza in a new pandemic um, that, uh, that is sometimes uh, quite modest uh, in its impact. So I've circled uh, in purple 
the Herald wave in Copenhagen of the 1918-19 pandemic, which ultimately killed somewhere around 50 million people worldwide uh, with disproportionate impact on the, on the poor uh, and low, low, uh, low health quality people with low access to health care, um, but dramatic impact in all the world's population. But <clears throat> in Copenhagen, uh, where there were good records kept, and so these, these data can be, uh, can be extracted after the fact, only 5% of the total mortality happened in the early wave in the, in the late, uh, in the spring and summer. And then the vast majority happened, uh, as in this country and elsewhere, in the fall. We don't know whether that was a change in the virus, whether that was a change in, uh, <clears throat> in the conditions of the host population or something else. But this little blip was probably uh, not something that would have concerned as many, very many people. And notably, that's happened in other pandemics as well. So uh, this 1889 to 92 pandemic, which we don't know much about because there were, uh, the virus uh, etiology was not understood at the time, but the, the, this early pandemic, uh, which was almost certainly flu in 1889 to 92, started with a rather unimpressive uh, blip of mortality uh, here shown in London. And the 1968 pandemic of flu, the most recent one before 2009, also uh, was, was what has been called smoldering uh, for a year. And then it became, uh, it, it did much more of its damage a full year later. That little historical episode um, dramatizes to me that, that one of the most important um, inputs into our thinking about infectious diseases is to remember what has happened in the past. Uh, and as in the era of big data and better surveillance and better uh, and big computational models, um, it's often tempting to think we, we understand this this situation, the latest situation based on the latest data. Um, but, but what history has shown um, is, is also a guide to what can happen. And for example, uh, just as an anecdote, <coughs> it, was, uh, it was imagined by many people um, in responding to the 2009 pandemic that we would be facing a big wave in January of 2010 because that's when normal flu seasons peak. But if you look at previous pandemic years, almost all of them peaked earlier in the fall because it was a new virus and it was more able to transmit at an earlier time. So that's just one example of learning something from history that was uh, that this paper uh, early, published early in the pandemic warned about, others of us warned about, but, but much of the planning for, forgot because it was too focused on the present. So I think history can be an enormously valuable guide and sometimes a forgotten, uh, sometimes forgotten how valuable. <clears throat> One thing I think uh, we should also remember though is that history is not always, a, is not a great guide to what can't happen. So if you imagine yourself in the position of someone in, uh, in say 2013 or early 2014 before the most recent Ebola epidemic uh, that, uh, that ravaged West Africa, three countries in West Africa. There had previously been, depending on how you count, over two dozen small 
Ebola outbreaks in these countries. This is a map of the, of the different outbreaks that had occurred in different African countries. Every single one of them had been controlled before it reached a size of 500 people or more. Um, <clears throat> uh, and most of them had been controlled at a size of maybe uh, dozens to, to a couple of hundred. And I think I would have been among those who mistakenly said at the end of 2013 or the beginning of 2014, Ebola has been controlled 25 times. We have no, we have limited resources and we can't, uh, we can't do everything. And uh, focusing on Ebola vaccination uh, might be a reasonable, a reasonable thing to do if you're worried about bioterrorism, uh, but is not a, a major global health priority. As you know, that turned out to be foolish, foolish reasoning. And retrospectively, uh, one can, can understand various reasons why. It probably was a somewhat different situation uh, given the countries that it was in, which had less experience uh, and uh, less, um, less health infrastructure than some others. But it's also a, just a fallacy of statistical reasoning. Uh, and one of my favorite papers in the, in the medical literature is this old paper from the 80s um, called, If Nothing Goes Wrong, Is Everything All Right? And it does a very simple uh, calculation and points out that if we know that nothing has happened out of, say, 25, let's say 24 times, then, <clears throat> of course, our best estimate of the probability that something goes wrong, where, I'm, where by go wrong I mean the epidemic gets out of control, our best estimate should be that the probability is zero because uh, in the past, the probability has been zero. But we have some uncertainty around that. And the uncertainty, if you take a 95% interval of uncertainty, as most, most people do in, in public health, the uncertainty extends from zero up to three divided by n, where n is the number of times where nothing's happened. So 24 times, our, our estimate of the risk of, of uh, a Ebola outbreak getting out of control if all Ebola outbreaks were created equal, should have been that it's somewhere between zero and one in eight. That's very different from zero, right? One in eight uh, probability of something like, like uh, what happened in West Africa a couple of years ago uh, is, is something to the world community should be worried about. <clears throat> and so the, the point of this is that, uh, that history can tell us what, are, what is possible, but we should not we should not make the fallacy of, of believing that because something has not yet happened, uh, it is not possible. How do we deal with these small threats that might get large? The problem is really one of, of uh, filtering. This is a screenshot from HealthMap, which is a, a project of Children's Hospital Boston um, that aggregates information mainly from ProMed mail, which is reports of outbreaks or suspicious infectious diseases or suspicious diseases of unknown cause that might be infectious in plants, animals, and people all around the world. And this is the week's alerts uh, from one week. There's a lot of alerts, right? And most of these, we're all going to be here in a few weeks, uh, we, let's hope. And so most of these are not going to turn into major risks. But the, the problem of filtering and figuring out which of these many, many alerts uh, is serious and which of them uh, should get a lot of attention and which of them should get less attention is an unsolved one at the moment. 
<clears throat> so it's not just that the way to prevent a big outbreak is to, is to keep a, a small outbreak from growing, but it's also that, that big outbreaks of infectious diseases are more, than, more bad than, they are, than just the, they, in proportion to their size. They're disproportionately bad. Um, this is a picture of the, uh, of the setup that was arranged for, um, for the nurse that was infected with, uh, with um, Ebola and uh, in, I think, in New Jersey. And this is uh, the line outside the Ebola treatment unit in one of the West African countries. Um, and so the idea that you can devote resources like this uh, to controlling one case is very different from, the, uh, from what you can do when you already have a large epidemic. So you, you, the local, con local capacity is limited, and so uh, keeping one person from transmitting is very different and easier than keeping uh, many people from transmitting. An additional reason for that is that national and global outbreaks prevent mutual aid. So in a, in a flood or a uh, earthquake, the, the damage is localized, and so it's possible to bring in power line people and emergency responders and other, others to help from one unaffected region to, a, to an affected region. But as the scale grows, that kind of mutual aid breaks down because, because there are no unaffected areas or there are fewer unaffected areas. And then a really specific point about infectious diseases is that large pathogen populations so more people infected with the pathogen provide more opportunities for evolution to occur, meaning changes, genetic changes in the pathogen itself. Those evolutionary changes may not all be bad. They might, they might uh, make the virus, for example, more mild, but they might, they might uh, do the opposite or they might lead to evolution of a novel way of transmitting. And that, that risk of evolution increases both because Genetic variants that are rare are more likely if you have more viruses around or more pathogens around, and also because natural selection works more efficiently in large populations. Um, so I mentioned that uh, when the 2009 flu outbreak, uh, flu pandemic began, it was, uh, it was very tricky to figure out what was going on, and I was uh, quite involved in this uh, effort especially, well, throughout the period, but just a few vignettes. So on May 4th, 2009, uh, I was at the CDC in Atlanta where they had requested people to come and help them make sense of what was going on. And there were two seemingly really contradictory data points. I mean, there were others, but these were the two sort of things people were focused on. In Mexico, 4% of the approximately, I think it was about 500 cases of known uh, pandemic flu had died. And that's twice the severity of 1918. 1918 killed about 2% of those uh, infected. In the United States, there were 1,000 cases or so, one of whom had died, which is about the death rate from seasonal flu. Same, same area. Um, so this, this presented a, a real question. This is maybe, maybe not a, maybe it's certainly not an existential risk if it's 4%, but it is, is quite clearly a catastrophic risk. Um, and this is the 1.1% is, is uh, not a major increase over 
passed. By July, it was still the case that people were uh, publishing estimates of the case fatality risk, meaning the probability of dying if you're infected, that spanned three and a half orders of magnitude from about uh, 1% to down to one in 250,000. So we, we were really un uncertain what was going on. So for me, the, the consequence is that we should focus on trying to deal with this minefield uh, of many, many small threats, some of which might get large, rather than trying to say when something gets large, how are we going to deal with it, uh, with the, that catastrophic risk. So the best way to, to, to deal with infectious disease risks is never to let them get catastrophic. So in particular, uh, that means for systems that we can't, we can't try to build systems that are only going to be activated in the event of a catastrophe. Those systems will atrophy. The people will be untrained. The people will be inexperienced. They won't know each other. Uh, and so, for example, this is a snapshot of the Emergency Operations Center at the CDC uh, in Atlanta. And their website states that for more than 91% of the time in the last seven years, this system has been activated. So there have been, there was pandemic flu, there was MERS, there was Ebola, there was some Zika, there are some headline things, and then there are some smaller emergencies. But they recognize that you don't set up this system and then leave it. You have to keep it, keep it uh, being exercised. And that means that investing in the sort of more boring response to only sub-catastrophic risks is part of, an essential part of dealing with, uh, of being ready for the more catastrophic ones. Um, other ways to, to, uh, to channel this kind of effort is to uh, try to speed the identification of and the focus of resources on the biggest threats. So we, as, I, as you saw, there are many, many little threats. Some of them will become big. Uh, and we still have an imperfect understanding of how to, main, how to uh, identify those, but better surveillance and especially better tools and forums to share data uh, in outbreaks are, are really high on the agenda in my field right now. Um, and this is a, a diagram from a, a paper that we wrote a couple of years ago about the sort of inputs from in influenza from, from the sequence of the virus to the properties of the virus uh, to the determinants of risk from that virus uh, up to the decisions that we might make. One of the most useful uh, documents I've read about uh, thinking about risks is from a former secretary of the Navy talking about national security, so completely different field, Richard Danzig. Um, and his argument is that humans will try to predict things. It's in our nature. Bureaucracies like the military will even more try to predict things because there's an incentive to do so. But that smart planners will try to design countermeasures that are robust to being wrong about those predictions. In the infectious disease field, that means, uh, that means things other than very narrowly targeted vaccines or efforts to control one pathogen at a time. So there are things like surveillance, building public, public health capacity, uh, investing in, in, in machinery that will help keep people alive, therapeutic uh, drugs and, and devices that are targeted to the host rather than a specific pathogen, uh, and, and other things. 
So I want to end by speculating a little bit about how much this might apply outside infectious diseases. Um, and I want to bring in another uh, sort of important article that, that, uh, from an effective altruism, uh, from part of the effective altruism crowd, which is this article by, uh, by Toby Ord and colleagues, which <clears throat> makes a very simple argument that if there is a very low probability, if you, if you have a model, which we all use for low probability risks, and that model says that the probability of some risk is very, uh, materializing is very low, then the probability that that model is wrong is, could, could possibly exceed the probability of the risk uh, predicted by the model. And so you should be more worried about this probability that the model uh, is telling you something inaccurate than you should be by the, by the, uh, by the estimated low risk. Applying that now to models of our own actions and of working to prevent catastrophic or existential risks, if we were infinitely knowledgeable, uh, then work to prevent catastrophes that was only valuable for preventing catastrophes and did nobody any good if that catastrophe failed to materialize might be infinitely valuable. But our models of our own actions and how those actions will reduce, we hope, or potentially not reduce, uh, because the model might be wrong, the risk of, of catastrophes. Uh, um, we, we have to have a model of how our actions are going to affect that risk, and that model might be wrong. And for, very, for, the, for the lowest probability risks, the most catastrophic risks, uh, our model predicting the impact of our actions um, is possibly more likely to be wrong than the risk is to materialize. So I would submit for people to debate whether this is another argument for emphasizing efforts against higher frequency subcatastrophic risks rather than, uh, rather than focusing on what we think are efforts to mitigate very low probability risks. But since the, the, our models of how, how our actions will affect that risk must be uncertain given the low probabilities, uh, maybe we're wrong. So I'll stop there and take some questions. For more talks like this, join us at EA Global London on the 3rd to 5th of November 2017. To attend, visit eaglobal.org. We're excited to see you there. Thanks for listening.